Today on the Central Baptist Podcast, Tom Cowan looks at the heart of the Ten Commandments and why they matter in modern life. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of the form of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Harry and I are really blessed with eight grandchildren. Some of them live in Ontario, some further in BC, and a couple of them live here. Sometimes they fly in to visit us, which is great fun. A couple of the younger ones were here a little while ago, and they said to me, Grandpa, they want to know what it was like when I was growing up. So they said, Grandpa, did you have a cell phone when you were growing up? I said, uh, no. I didn't try to explain to them that our first phone was actually a party line. Many, some of you know what a party line was? Yeah? Some of the young adults over there don't. I decided that I wouldn't try and explain it. Mean, they might think it's a phone where you arrange parties or stuff on, but that's not the way it is. If you're older like us and were raised maybe on the prairies or somewhere, you know what a party line was. So I said, no, we didn't have a telephone. And then I added, uh, said, we didn't even have a television. So in amazement, they said, what did you do? I said, well, you know, we read books and we played games and we did jigsaw puzzles and we did our homework and amazingly we talked to each other. So they filled in some blanks in their life. We live today in the most technologically advanced time in history. There are more inventions and gadgets today for our personal use in our kitchens and whatever than we've ever known. We live in a part of the world that would consider itself more sophisticated and probably anywhere else on the planet. So when you turn to Exodus chapter 20 and you read a 35-year-old commandment, God is saying, stay away from idols and the dangers of idolatry. My sense is that of all the commandments, this seems to be the most irrelevant and unrealistic to us. So may I remind you from last week when we started, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue of the Ten Words, have a historical and redemptive context. And they must be understood in the light of that context. They're given to people who are already redeemed. They have known the touch of God's grace, the call of God's grace. And they're the transcript of God's character about how redeemed people should live. 
and behave in whatever time, whatever culture they're in. In the book of Chronicles, there's a, a group of people who are called the sons of Issachar. And we're only told one thing, one line about the sons of Issachar. It says simply, they understood the times in which they lived. I think it's a great phrase. And so must we. Yet even as we understand that, this second word from God about avoiding idols may seem more out of context than almost any other word. So let me begin with a story. It happens a little later than the time the commandments were given from God. So it means they should still be fresh in their minds. Moses had gone back up to meet with God. And the people became confused and assumed that they'd never see him again. And so they said to Aaron, do something. So Aaron tells them to take off of their jewelry. And they fashion that into an idol. And they do so. And the idol is in the shape of a golden calf. The people worship it. They dance around it. They put it at the center of their lives and their nation. They watch the glow and the flames. Seeing themselves in its, in its reflection just memorizes them. The story goes on to tell us that God was furious with them and made them grind up tablets of stone, scatter them in the water, and make the people drink it. That's, that's a story for another time. And so the warning about not bowing down to idols would have made great sense to them at their time. And I don't think we can imagine how intelligent, sophisticated people like us would sit around an idol and stare at it with excitement and fascination of the flickering images. Or can we? On April the 10th, 1939, the World Fair was being held in New York City. And a new invention made its debut. And the New York Times wrote about this new invention. It said, the problem is, People are being asked to sit and keep their eyes glued to its screen. And so the New York Times wrote, the American people will not go for that and will not have time for that. <laughs> what was the invention? Television. Television. We have become worshipers of our inventions. We worship what we've created. We worship at the temple of the celebrity. We've made idols out of famous people. And it seems that charisma is much more important than character. A whole industry is built on their activity. Some of which may not be very moral or ethical or whatever. It seems that our society, we no longer have heroes. We only have stars. We have become worshippers of a little white ball. And some would sell their soul to get that little ball into the hole in the middle of the pretty green grass. If it's so hard, why don't we make the hole bigger? We have become worshippers of health and beauty. You know that is a billion dollar industry. We are modern day followers of Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection in a pool. You get my point. Idolatry is not about having little statues in our homes and dancing around them. 
Idolatry is about the condition of our heart, the one and only true God. So what is this idolatry? Several ideas. Idolatry is an exchange. It's about exchanging God for something that is not God. It's about taking God out of the center of life and putting something else in the center of our lives. One example of this exchange is the way I think, particularly in our part of the world, in which we worship the creation instead of the creator. Roman says to us, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. And they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So we worship creation instead of creator. That's idolatry. We're called to be stewards of creation, but that is not just our larder where we get our food or play our sports arena. Creation is the landscape in which God has painted his world. Creation is the canvas which God paints. But when we put creation in the place of the creator and worship creation, we give creation the rank of a deity, which means we also reduce and diminish God. We are committing idolatry. Idolatry is about making something holy, which is not holy, just ordinary, and taking something that is holy and treating it as ordinary, again in exchange. Also, idolatry is about exalting something that's not God and making it God, lifting it up to the place of God, and in doing so, we make God less. When we do that, we lower God at the very least, so second place. Idolatry is about worshiping something that is dead and really giving it life. We breathe human life into something that's inanimate and lifeless. And then we allow its fictitious rule life to rule over us. In the meantime, we take those things that already have the breath of God and we treat them as though they were dead. God alone is the one who has and who gives the breath of life. Idolatry is both material and mental. The mind takes up the images in a mind that's not yet learned to love God. We can become idolatrous, folks, about any issue and hold it like some sacred object in our hands. So, we may in fact be more like the children of Israel than we know, dancing around the golden calf. We've committed idolatry in our culture. We are idol worshippers in a technological society. You see, the face of idolatry has moved from the external to the internal. But that does not alter its seductive nature. The force of idolatry lies in the power given to something by our imagination. It is the mind and the power of imagination that, that gives idolatry its force. And in return, idolatry uses its power over those very minds that seek to give it life. At the heart of each commandment, we'll see week by week, is some part, some aspect of God's nature. This command that tells us so why it's so clear and specific, it says, God says that he is a jealous God. That's a way of describing God that we may not really think about very much. Deuteronomy, along with Exodus, also echoes, be careful, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God, that he made you, 
Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And it finishes it off. A jealous God. Now, we tend to use the word jealous in English. And we're usually using it in a very negative kind of a way. Being jealous means that we want to hold tightly onto something. We don't want to share it with other people. Or we're jealous when someone has something that, that we don't have or we don't possess. And we're jealous that they've got it and not us. Having a jealous nature is usually regarded as a negative trait, a negative quality. And so while we may use this word jealous in this negative context, jealous also can have a positive side. We might say that we jealously love our spouse, meaning that we do not want allow anything or anyone to interfere in our relationship to come between us. We can say that we love our children so much that we jealously guard their safety, meaning that we would do anything to protect them. We want the very best for this, for them. So in this positive way, you see, jealous love is protective. It's not negative. It shields. It defends. It holds us close to its heart. It protects us. It seeks the best. Jealous love does not give equal time to other contenders. Jealous love is not about equal opportunity. Jealous love does not make room for rivals. Jealous love does not accept competition. Jealous love will not accept second place. In one place, the New Testament, in his letters, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, I am jealous for you with a godly love. That's the kind of love that God has for his people, for his church, for us as a redeemed nation. And it's crucial that we understand his heartbeat toward us. This is the heart and the core of this commandment. Jealous love runs hot because this, this holy God has a divine passion for us as his church, as his people. We need to think that God's jealous love was costly for him. It sent his son to the cross. The father let go, the one who shared his essence, who shared his being, who shared his nature, who shared the glory of heaven. Jealous love cost the father the presence of the son. This divine jealousy, this godly envy for us, meant that the father somehow felt the pain of sin in this divine exchange as he turned away. So we have to believe and trust that God's jealous heart for us means that he wants and strives for his very, very best for his people. If you have a Bible or wherever you follow the scriptures, an iPad or a phone, whatever, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, sorry, chapter 7. If you've got it and you can look it up, Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is, I'll be honest with you, this is not an easy story to read or to grapple with or understand because it deals with genocide which is ordered by God and so I'll be honest and just tell you we can struggle with parts of this story but we've got to get to the point which is important it teaches us how to deal with idols so if you have it Deuteronomy chapter 7 he's talking to the nation of Israel 
when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess and drives out many nations before you. And he names the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you are. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. And here's the reason. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Israel is told to clear the land. The land that they're going to enter with all of these strange gods and, and pagan symbols and temples, Israel is told to clear the land in no uncertain terms. The people are instructed to drive out, destroy seven nations, to clear out the symbols of polytheistic religions, to destroy the images of false deities which were often crude and sexual, to take away the, the potential and the opportunity for intermarriage because of this divine jealousy. This is what we'll call clearing the land. God wants his people to walk into a newly cleared landscape, which is free from temptations, clear away every possible hindrance to living as God's holy people. What might that mean for us today? Let me suggest to you that trusting God's best for us, individually and as a church, means clearing the land within us. This instruction is not to go out and rent bulldozers and destroy some part of Victoria and create a nice Christian neighborhood where you can write Bible verses on the walls in terms of graffiti instead of graffiti. You see, the landscape that we're called to clear is the landscape of our minds. This landscape within us is what an English writer called Gerald Manley Hopkins calls inscape. We're to clear the inscape that is within us. It's the, in, the landscape of our heart that needs cleared and cleaned to allow prime space for God's very best in our lives. That's what Jesus teaches us. The Gospel of Mark. For it is from within, out of men's hearts, it means out of people's hearts, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils rise and come from within. Authentic Christianity is not about improving our values. It's not about reshuffling our priorities. It's not about realigning our goals. These are merely cosmetic changes. This divine jealousy calls for a renovation of the heart. 
And that will usually mean that we have to clear the landscape of our minds where we have built ideas with material stronger than concrete. It's where we have stuff in the basements of our souls that we don't want anyone to see. The real environmental cleanup, folks, is always in the inside. The the toxic waste dump is in our hearts and in our minds. And God says, clear the land. Many of us are familiar with the story that Jesus tells about the rich young ruler, this young man. All the money and all the potential in the world would not surrender it to follow Jesus. The issue you see is not the money he has in the bank. The issue is is the treasure he has in his heart. He's created an idol. He's not willing to clear the land. That's the challenge that is before every one of us. There's um, words of an old, old hymn. We don't sing it anymore. I couldn't even tell you how many decades it is since I've sung it. But one of the lines says, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Clearing the land means that some things have to go. Some things have to go. And when you or I will trust God for his future, sorry, when we trust God for his best for us, we need to know that that will always look to our future. Clearing the land means identifying, removing the obstacles that are our future threat or hindrance to our lives. That means that a clearly carefully cultivated heart and life will be able to anticipate and and avert inappropriate situations before they come. You see, we live in the rough and tumble of life with everybody else. We know that. We know that. But there are certain problems and difficulties that should not come to Christians. And it's not because we're smarter It's not because we're better or it's not because we're healthier but it simply is because we have cleared the land before we get there. You understand me? We anticipate problems and we clear them out of our way before we get there. We should have as God's people who have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit we should have the insight to see the the seductive potential of evil before we get there and not fall into some unsuspecting trap. And when we clear this inner landscape and remove potential obstacles, do you realize that we're, we're keeping our lives free for God and obstacles for the days that lie ahead of us? One of the realities for many of us in our lives is a mortgage. When we sign a mortgage, we're committing our money for the future. When we bought our very first house in Calgary a long, long time ago, we came out of the lawyer's office and Harry said to me, how do you feel now? I said, I think I'm going to throw up. Because we had $17 left in our checking account. That was it. 
we got a mortgage. But you remember the root of the word mortgage, M-O-R-T, in French? What does that mean? Death. It's going to kill you every month. And yet, let me tell you that much more expensive than a mortgage on a house is when people, in a thoughtless decision, mortgage their future. They mortgage it maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. They've been in a relationship that they knew, they knew was wrong right from the start. But if we trust the truth that God wants the very, his very best for us, then our best and wisest decisions will always be to keep our lives free for God. Bad decisions mortgage our future. Good decisions free our future. I think in the days in which we live, I just find it so tragic to see so many people, maybe often, not always, but often young people, who take some drugs that they don't know are bad and they ruin the potential of their lives they will never ever be able to retrieve. I think that's a tragedy. I remember a good number of years ago in our church here in the city, a young man, a young adult committed suicide. He hung himself in the garage and his mother found him. It was tragic. He was very well known, and I knew that um, we were going to have about 500 or so young adults come to the funeral service at our church. He had gotten himself into a deep, dark place. What was I going to say to them? Because they're not going to listen to me for 30, 35 minutes. I got maybe seven or eight minutes to talk to them. I got up in the middle of the night, as I often do when something's tossing and turning in my mind. And I said, God, can you give me one line? One line that I really can say to these young people at this service. And down in our living room, God gave me a line. I've never forgotten it. I never read it anywhere in a book. It was simply this. Don't do in the dark what you can't undo when the light returns. You understand that? Don't do in the dark what you can't undo when the light returns. I'm 77. And I will be honest with you this morning. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'll just be honest with you. I struggle when I see Christian young people having casual sex. Actually, there is no such thing as casual sex. Sex isn't casual at all. It's a life-giving act without life-giving intent. Or I come across young people just living together without the covenant of marriage. And I've asked them, why are you doing that? You know what the answer usually is? Well, it's just what everybody else does. My response to that, folks, is, so what? 
So what? You are not the first generation who've been faced with that challenge or that temptation. So what? The whole point of the Ten Commandments to us is that we do not do what everybody else just does. The greatest gift of freedom we can give ourselves is to clear the land of our lives, to live our lives free for the future and offer God that potential. And offer God perhaps another life partner for that potential. We are to walk into the future that allows us to enjoy God's best, his jealous best for us. And we cannot enjoy the fullness of his new life and his best if we live in the old lifestyle or just do what everybody else does. There are things that we have to put off and discard before we can put on the new lifestyle of Christ. This divine jealousy asks us to have the holy courage, the holy guts, to clear the landscape within us, even where we have not yet walked, so we can walk into the future as God's holy people and enjoy his best. Now that's a tough story in Deuteronomy chapter 7. But there's an interesting little postscript to it about clearing the line that we need to know and to pay attention to his warning. The story has a little tag end that is picked up in the book of Joshua. Let me summarize it for you. It's a small slice of a much larger story. Remember, Israel has been told to clear the land, to clear the nations, destroy them. Well, a group of people, a nation called the Gibeonites, here's what, Jericho, what Israel did at Jericho and Ai. In other words, they smashed them, they destroyed them. How they slaughtered them. And the Gibeonites, well, they said, we don't want to be next. That makes sense. And so they decided to play a trick on them. Here's what the story says. When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation to them, and their donkeys were loaded. Now, you've got to use your imagination and get this picture. Their donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins. They were cracked and mended. They put on worn and patched sandals on their feet, and they wore old clothes. And all the bread that they bought in their food supply was dry and moldy. And so they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a far distance. <laughs> it's like, look at all, look at what our stuff is like. It's old and it's dry and it's moldy and it's cracked and our shoes are worn and our, our clothes are all, all done. And so we're saying to us, make a treaty with us. But you get the point of the story, it was a scam. The Gibeonites conned Israel, and Israel fell for it. And they made a treaty with them. They were told not to, but they made a treaty with them. And when they found out it was a scam, because they had made a treaty with them, they could not destroy them. They were not allowed to, by God. It's telling us that a bad choice can ruin the future. Satan does not come as a frontal attack. Satan comes in a disguise. Do you remember? In what seductive form does temptation come from the white witch 
and the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone remember? Turkish delight, good for you. Temptation comes in the form of Turkish delight, which tastes so nice, so enjoyable. How can anything be wrong with this? It's only Turkish delight. We need to have the smarts to, and the wisdom to be prepared for every honest step we make to seek God's best, to be met with a scam some seductive tactic to, to tempt us into making a pact with the devil, to accept some deal that compromises God's best. When you read the, the little letter which we call First John, it's only got 104 verses, I think, in English. It simply says the very last line, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. That Greek phrase in that exact way does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It's John's final curt warning. I, I got to imagine that John is almost running out of parchment. He's got just a tiny fragment of parchment left and a tiny bit of paper left and he's squeezing this final caution just right at the bottom of the page. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. You and I both know at times the pressure that comes on our lives. I know that. You know that. Sometimes it drives us to our knees. Things that we want to do for the days ahead. Just as it drove Jesus to his knees in Gethsemane. And even as Jesus wrestled in prayer with his father. He knew. He knew. He knew that he had to yield himself to the best will of God. And his obedience kept him free for God's will and it paved the way for our salvation. So in those times when we're pushed down onto our knees, remember that Jesus was there also. He chose crucifixion. And that's what paved the way for resurrection and for life. And if we know on our knees that something in our life needs to die because it's not God's best, it needs to die because it's a scam. Can I see to you this morning? Let it die. Kill it. Crucify it. Because when we stand up, we will have cleared the land. We will have chosen the path that is God's best for us for the days ahead. Father, I have a deep sense coming to this morning that that speaks to a few people, maybe more, who need in some way that nobody else knows to clear the land in their lives.
I make a decision that's the best decision for you, for them. My prayer this morning is that you would give them and all of us the holy courage to know that a jealous God loves us for his very, very best. And not be afraid of that. Some folk have been there too, and they made a choice. Father, may we never do in the dark what we cannot undo when the light returns, because the light always returns. So you are our vision, you are our wisdom. Your jealous love wants the best for us. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.